I want you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Paul's epistle to the Christians in Rome, the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 1, and I want to begin by reading for us just verses 18 to 23 as we continue to do what I've entitled our current series, Uncovering the Ugly Truth. You can follow along in your text, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. I have been telling us over the last several weeks now about the war that each Christian is engaged in as we walk in this earth. And it's really my deepest hope, my deepest prayer for us as God's people that each one of us would truly understand in its fullest sense what I'm talking about what we're dealing with. I've been getting the sense that there may be some confusion as to what it is I'm talking about when I speak about the idea, this concept of a war for the gospel. And maybe there's confusion in the minds of some because it doesn't really seem, at least, that you personally as a Christian are actually engaged in any kind of war at all in your own Christian living. Maybe it is, in fact, for many, that your Christian life is just going on as it always has. Your Christian walk is kind of just meandering along through life, and you can understand why I would be speaking about it in terms of a war for the gospel. After all, it seems many years ago when you trusted in Christ, then it was new and fresh to you. Then the things of God's truth were new and fresh in many ways. Your life since then, however, has been no real problem at all. And so when you hear me saying that there are those within the ranks of Christendom, within the ranks of evangelicalism, within the ranks of what we the real church, you haven't seen it. You haven't seen anyone selling out for a different gospel, at least as you see it. Everything seems to be just fine, so what's the big issue? Maybe maybe there are some of us who are confused. Maybe it is you even disagree with the assessment that I've given in light of the gospel because 
you see that I, as a pastor, as someone who continually is in the fray of the evangelical movement as it moves along and I'm always reading things, I'm so close to the fire each and every day of the week through that that you just believe that the fire's hotter for me than it is maybe for other people because I'm so close to the fire. In other words, you admit that there is probably a skirmish taking place in regard to gospel truth. There is some disagreements going on, but the reality isn't a war, and even the things that are out there now that may be somewhat questionable, they're not exactly incorrect in all of their points. There is some good in it, so what is all the fuss about? In fact, you might even ask, should we call it a war? Maybe there's others who have what I like to call the avoidance mentality, much like the illustration of the ostrich. You just kind of stick your head in the sand and hope that when you pull your head out of the sand, it will all be gone, everything will be taken care of, the problem will just disappear. Some of us treat our cars like that, don't we? We hear a problem when we just turn the radio up, hoping that when we turn the radio down, it will be gone. I do that sometimes. If we just avoid it long enough, it's either going to go away or somehow fix itself. And we think about that sometimes in the evangelical church. Now, I don't know specifically which category those of you who might be confused may be in, or maybe you didn't find yourself in any of those categories exactly. But you still don't know what I mean by describing it as a war. But either way, wherever you are, I believe it is a war. And also, I believe calling it anything less is really to fall prey to the very enemy that we are fighting against. Making sure that what we receive that comes packaged under the name, this is the good news of God, is a responsibility that each and every one of us as Christians must carry out. We must ensure that what is called gospel is in fact the gospel. And when counterfeits are found, when there are those out there that aren't the true gospel, even in the smallest piece, we must fight to make sure that what is true remains clear and understood. This is the lifelong ministry of you and I as Christians. This is our task. And I want us to just listen for a moment to the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You can turn there with me if you'd like. You don't have to. I'm just going to read this and make a few comments about it as we introduce our time this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is Paul describing his own ministry to others. What his ministry is. And here is what he says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I am, or I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. In other words, he says, listen, I'm going to implore you in the name of Christ, even when I'm with you, I'm meek, but when I'm away, it seems like I have a greater boldness to speak to you in ways that I should. He said, verse 2, I ask that when I'm present, I may not... Be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. 
He says, when I come to you, I, I don't want to have to be like I propose I should be speaking to those who are challenging the ministry of what we're talking about. As if we're in some kind of humanistic debate. Paul says, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Paul says it is warfare. Christian ministry, Christian life, what you do, how you walk, how you live. Paul, Paul is engaged in the activities of his own Christian living as God has called him to be. And he says it is war, but it is not a war of the flesh. It's not a war on a fleshly level. It's not the kind of war that men fight against men. Rather, it is a war in a spiritual realm. It is a a far greater war with far greater implications. It's a war, notice, that encompasses the mind of men. When Paul says speculations in verse 5, he's talking about that idea, logismos, that which is is what persuades the thoughts of, of a man's mind. When men and women think what they think to be true, that, that's the reality of speculation. What they have, have believed to be true, he says, we are taking every thought. That word thought is actually the outworking of those speculations. So we are taking what men and women think to be true, and then they're living from that thought. We are taking that captive. Your speculations are worked out in how you live. So Paul says, we are at war and we are taking prisoners. We are taking those prisoners. That's the word captive. Someone who is subject to another. We are, we are taking every thought that man has about life and the actions that flow out of that kind of thinking in life And we are confronting it with the truth of Christ. We are taking it a prisoner. We are taking those thoughts prisoner and bringing them to Christ. We are subjecting them to the obedience of Christ. Not, now listen, not for the sake of caging people into some kind of do and don't system. Not so that people can become, quote unquote, religious and do religious things or not do certain things and thereby believe in themselves that they somehow now can be acceptable to God. That is not what we are doing. Rather, we are setting them free from, with the gospel, we are setting their speculations, their mind free from the very prison of deception they are already in. And so according to the Apostle Paul, it is war. It is stratia. That's the word. Stratia. That's that's the word for war. It it really has the root of a soldier. We are in this soldiering kind of life. 
We're fighting against the very evil forces who are working in every area of the world, every philosophy to dilute and reinvent what God has already said to be true. That's what we're fighting. Every area. We're thereby exchanging what God has said to be true for a simpler and a more easy way to have a relationship with Him. That's the delusion. That's the lie. Nothing but a counterfeit gospel. And it has to be exposed by us. That exposure happens when we war for the true gospel to be heard. When we war that the true gospel be proclaimed. Even if that means the war sadly is comes up against those even within evangelicalism that have adjusted the gospel in the smallest kind of way. And it should not be a surprise to us as Christians that we must do this. This has been the same thing that has been happening since the beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were there, the serpent of old came along and he sold Eve a new definition. He sold Eve a reinvention of what God had said to be true. That's what he did with Eve. Remember what God had told Adam and Eve in Genesis. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Those were God's words to Eve and Adam. Those were God's commands to them. Don't go there. Don't eat of it. But here's what the serpent said in Genesis 3-4. You surely shall not die. Counterfeit. Reinvention redefining, changing in the slightest way. Satan is saying what God said isn't what he really means by what he said. Just follow the easier path and you will find out that it leads to the same place. Have you heard this in, re- in religious circles? All roads lead to the same end. You ever heard anybody say that? It doesn't matter what religion you are, we all get to the same place anyway. That's right out of the pit of hell. Go ahead, Eve. Everything will be just fine. Just do it this way. In fact, the only reason God is holding out on you is because He doesn't want you to be as knowledgeable as Him. So we've followed the speculations of the world. Adam followed the speculations of the world. They bought the lie. But did it work? Absolutely not. And it will never work. No matter what it says or how good it looks. You know why? Because the only way to God is by and through the means by which He said... And he has made available. And nothing else will work. Every other way, every other modification, every other simple adjustment, every other way in which it's packaged is an absolute lie. It's only an illusion that will lead men to one place if they follow it. And that place is hell itself. That's it. 
So this is a war. And it is a serious war. It is eternal life or eternal death. This is why Paul is so serious with those who read this letter for the first time. This is why this letter comes across with so much weight. And why all of us ought to see it no other way. The choice is eternal. The reality is eternal. This is eternally serious. People's eternal destinies are at stake. And we dare not, by our own laziness or our own foolishness, deliberately get it wrong or ignore it when it comes to the gospel. Any change to what God has given us, any adjustment in any kind of way, even in the slightest way, removes it from the realm of God's gospel and puts it in the realm of man's gospel. Man's gospel never saves. So Paul begins where we all must begin. And it's with this beginning he demolishes the unbiblical notion That man is in some way inherently good. He begins with that foolish speculation that man in some way could in fact do anything good enough where he has the ability in himself to have a right relationship with a holy God. That kind of thinking is an absolute delusion of the truth, if not an outright denial of what God has said. Because not only does man not have the ability to reach God, but the reality is man has no desire within himself even to seek after God. None. In fact, he even denies there is a God. And so contrary to popular belief, man is not ascending in a higher plane toward God and getting better and better and better and better and someday he'll reach nirvana and someday he'll reach a place where he is in himself enlightened to the point where he is now deity himself. He is not ascending in any kind of way in that way. The fact of the matter is that all mankind is spinning helplessly out of control farther and farther away from God. Paul tells us that that's the reality And that part of that reality is that God is in a constant state of divine wrath against man. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That is a constant state. God is in a constant state of wrath against man because man is in a constant state of sinfulness against God. In fact, the Bible tells us in Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Every single day. God is wrathful with men. This is reality. Man stands guilty before God, And we dare not redefine that. 
We dare not try to make it more palatable for men or deny it with the false hope that someday it will just go away. Paul says this is reality. The wrath of God is revealed against all men. All ungodliness, irreverence for God, all unrighteousness, the acts of of doing wickedness which is born out of an ungodliness of men. Why? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, no man is innocent before God until they are proven guilty. No, no. That is not the, the rule of law and the glories of heaven. The rule of law, the reality is that all men are guilty until they are made innocent by God. Because of their guilt, because of their ungodliness and unrighteousness, His wrath is continually remaining upon them. So the question comes in our minds, in our, in our human thinking, and almost in a logical way the question comes, is God actually justified? Is God actually justified in His anger against man? I mean, after all, we don't see God. Is God actually, as a God, justified in His anger? And the answer of Scripture is a screaming yes. Which begins to be unfolded for us in verses 19 to 23. The first biblical principle we must always keep in mind is that God is absolutely just. That just means right. God, God is absolutely right. Absolutely, you know, there's a, there's a thing in space called absolute, there's an absolute vacuum, right? Where, where it's a, I don't understand all the science behind it, but the word absolute sticks there because nothing else can affect that. God is absolute just. Just in every way. He is right in every way. In other words, God never condemns unless condemnation is rightfully deserved. Remember that. God never condemns unless condemnation is rightfully deserved. And we see the principle of rightful condemnation throughout all of Scripture. If you you go through the history of Scripture, I'll just give you a quick, simple history of a couple places. You remember back in Joshua, Joshua chapter 7 and the story of Achan. Achan took some of the forbidden spoils from Jericho when the nation of Israel was called into the promised land and they they go to Jericho and they march around Jericho and the walls fall down and God would tell them to, to take all the spoils as their own. And Achan took some of that even though God had commanded that none of it be taken for them personally. It was revealed that Achan had taken it. How was it revealed? Because Israel had lost the next battle, the battle against Ai, or Ai as it's spelled. It had been revealed that Achan had done this sinful thing and caused that defeat because God wasn't with them. Now Achan knew the law of God. He knew what was given through Moses. Joshua had faithfully brought that down. 
He also knew that he was guilty before God and his sin deserved the wrath of God. Achan knew that. God had, had clearly said that. If you do these certain things, this is the penalty for it. In fact, he and his entire family were stoned by the people of Israel for their sin. You say, well, I thought Achan was the one sinning. Yes, Achan did the act, but the people hid it. He and his family shrouded it with their own secrecy. They didn't expose him. And so the nation of Israel was used as an instrument of God's wrath upon the sin of Achan. He was guilty before God. All men are guilty before God. And Paul begins to give us here in Romans chapter 1... Four reasons why all men, four reasons why all men deserve God's divine wrath. Reason number one is this. Why is God justified in his wrath against men? Why is God so just in his anger against men? Here's reason number one. Divine exposure. Divine exposure. The invisible has been made visible to everybody. The visible or the invisible has been made visible to everybody. You might even want to say God is justified because of His divine exposure to everybody. Verses 19 and 20, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Because God made it evident to them. We can stop there for a moment. God is completely justified. He is completely right in His wrath against all mankind. Why? Because God has seen fit in His providence and in His sovereign care to clearly reveal Himself to all mankind. You notice no one escapes. No one escapes. He himself is clear. Phaneras. That's the word evident. God has made himself clear to everybody. You say, well, well, what about those people who live on some remote island somewhere? Who, who are some Amazon jungle tribe who are down somewhere and, 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 you know, in the history of men, we found new people groups all over the world. They've never had the scriptures. They don't have someone telling them about God. How can they be rightly guilty before a holy God? Listen, they're guilty before God because even though They may not have the written revelation of God that we have here. Even though they may not have had some missionary come to them and tell them about Jesus Christ. What they do have is the general revelation concerning God. What they do have is the divine exposure of God to them. That's what they have. Because God has made the knowledge of Himself clear within them. You see that? 
Why is God wrathful against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men? Well, because they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. What truth are they suppressing in their own act of unrighteousness because of their ungodliness? The truth that God is not who He has shown Himself to be. Because that which is known about God. You see, there is realities of God that all men know. It is clear. Why? Because God has made it clear. God made it clear to them. How? By putting it in them. The understanding that He is the Creator. It is in all men. Now, when we share the gospel with someone and someone says, oh, I don't believe in God, that's just suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They know that God is. You know why they know that? Because God put it in them. I don't have to prove God to them. God already did. So understand this. All men doesn't matter where you live on the planet. All men have been given visible, understandable evidence through exposure to an invisible God. Let me say that again. All men, doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter who it is, all humanity has been given visible Understandable evidence through exposure to the invisible God. Now let me pause here just for a moment. Because all through the scriptures, you will find evidence that God has not left himself without witness to men. Right? As we read the scriptures. We read about the Egyptians and their captivity of Israel. And we read about how God's power was put on display before them through Moses. The invisible God was showing Himself visible through the acts to the Egyptians. Through Moses. The Philistines saw God's power on display. They even acknowledged it as God's ark with the law of Moses, Aaron's staff, and the manna in it was in their temple, and their supposed false god continued to find itself on its face. They even acknowledged it. And every other people group who has ever lived upon the face of the earth has knowledge of God. And, more importantly, they are responsible to acknowledge and respond to that revelation of God. That's biblical revelation. And yet what Paul is referring to here is simply general revelation. Paul has already said, For the wrath of God is revealed against all of men. And he says, By nature, men are sinful, and they sinfully hold the truth of God away in their own unrighteousness. They deny the reality of what God has said to them. We were talking this morning about praise in Sunday school. And I, I want us to go back for a moment to a passage that we were told to go to, Second Chronicles 16. 
Because I was thinking about it as we were reading through that passage in Sunday school, that this declares the very reality of what Paul is saying. And why all men must acknowledge God. And you say, well, they don't have the Scriptures. Well, here's why they all must acknowledge God. We were... Turn to Second First. I'm sorry, First Chronicles chapter 16. First Chronicles chapter 16, and verse. We began in verse 23. Sing to the Lord, all the earth, proclaim good tidings of His what salvation. That's gospel, right? Proclaim the gospel day to day. Tell everybody about the salvation that can only be found in God alone all the time. Tell of His glory among the nations. What's that glory? The glory of salvation. Wonderful deeds among the peoples that God will save a sinful people from themselves. That's wonderful. Why? Because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared, listen, above all gods. Let's just put gospel there. He is to be feared. His gospel is greater than all other gospels. He's to be feared above any of that kind of nonsense. Why? Because all the gods of the peoples are idols. But, now here's the reason. Here's the reason why you ought to acknowledge God. Here's the reason why all men must acknowledge God and all men must proceed towards this acknowledgement of God that God has given Him. Because He, the Lord, made the heavens. Don't listen to the foolish other Gospels. Don't follow other gods. Why? Because they don't have the power of the invisible God who has shown His visible nature in all the things that He's made. He made the heavens. Just look at the sky. The God you must follow is the God who created. That's the one you need to fear. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. So ascribe to Him, O peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array or with the splendor that's due Him. Do you see? Go back to Romans 1. Paul says all men have been given this knowledge. God made it clear. God has clearly made Himself known within men. God made it evident to men. How did God make it evident to men? Through what He made. The heavens declare it. Well-known theologian Augustus Strong defined it this way. The Scriptures both assume and declare that the knowledge of God is universal. The Scriptures declare it. But even before man was given the Scriptures, even before God by His grace began to give the law through Moses, prophets, even before we had anything that we have sitting on our lap today, guess what God did? God inlaid the evidence of that fundamental truth. Right? That God is there. God is knowable, that fundamental truth He has laid in the very nature of man so that nowhere is God without witness. 
nowhere. And even though God has sovereignly and universally made himself known to every human being, they willfully push that knowledge away. They suppress it, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, in their own unrighteousness. It is in light of this truth from the word of God that no person, no person can rightly plead ignorance of God just because they do not have or have not heard from the scriptures. They cannot plead ignorance. Why? Because God has always made himself clear and he continues to clearly show himself to man and there is therefore God is fully justified. Fully right in his condemnation of anyone who refuses to believe. I'm sure you've heard heard the story of Helen Keller. Maybe some of you have read it in school. Born blind, deaf, speechless. And how as a young girl she learned to communicate through the constant efforts and perseverance of her teacher, Ann Sullivan. And what a great story when we read that. Think about it. One day when Ann Sullivan first tried to tell Helen about God. Maybe you know this. She tried to tell Helen about God, and the reply she was given from Helen was that she already knew about him. She just didn't know his name. Why? Because God had made himself known to all men. It doesn't matter if you're born blind, deaf, speechless. It doesn't matter. Paul says, that which is known literally means that which is knowable. The things we can know about God. By just seeing what He created, the invisible attributes. The invisible attributes. The knowable, invisible attributes of God every man knows. They know intuitively because God has placed that knowledge in them. How? How has God done that? Verse 20 tells us. For since the creation of the world, how far back does that go? How far back does creation go? It goes all the way back to before the foundation of the world, right? For ever since God said, let there be light, and there was. Ever since the beginning, before beginnings ever began, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, what? His eternal power and His divine nature. In other words, that He is all-powerful and that He is God in His divinity, His divine nature, have been clearly seen. And they have been understood through what has been made. It is clearly obvious that you and I cannot know everything there is to know about God, even though we have His Word. God is inexhaustible. But Paul's point 
is that even apart from written revelation, and we know more of God from written revelation than God declares from himself because we know personally who God is from the scriptures, even apart from the written revelation that we have right here, the knowable attributes of God that are reflected through his creation, they cry out with unspeakable clarity as to who it is. Randy read it this morning. I think it's worthy of our time to read it again. David, Psalm 19, verse 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard yet. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens He, God, has pitched the tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from His pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run His course. It rises as one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. You see, just the sun alone screams of the Creator God who is knowable. But he's all powerful and divine. Some years ago, there was an astrophysicist who was the director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. His name was Bob Jastrow. And he wrote a book entitled God and the Astronomers. And in that book, he said this. Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. First of all, consider the enormity of the problem. Science, in its wisdom, has proved that the universe exploded into a being at a certain moment. Science calls it the Big Bang Theory. We call it Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. It asks, what was the cause that would produce this effect? Who or what put that matter and energy into the universe? And science cannot answer these questions. And for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of human reason, let's use Romans' words, in the power of his own speculation, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself up over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. Why can't man, in all of his wisdom, figure out on his own? Why can't he do it? Because he refuses to acknowledge the very God who has clearly revealed himself. He suppresses the truth of God in his own unrighteousness. Paul says that through what God has made, we can visibly see the very character of our invisible God and we clearly understand who it is that creation is speaking about. 
All you need to do is look outside. You can look out the windows of our church. You can actually just look at your neighbor sitting right next to you. And you will quickly see the invisible attributes of God. We can spend a lot of time this morning rehearsing the wonders of God's creation. There's one thing I want to mention, and it always fascinates me. I have a book in my library called 2001 Fascinating Facts. Got it years ago. It's always been kind of an interesting book just to look through. It's full of the bizarre things, you know, those things that man just cannot explain without his own, in his own wisdom. And it has in there information concerning the operation of weather, something we are very familiar with here in New England. And it says this. It says that scientists have done studies and reported that, quote, at any given time in the world, there are on average some 1,800 storms taking place. Now, that's amazing to me. And if any one time in the world, across the globe, there's 1,800 storms happening. That's amazing. One of these scientists have calculated that the energy needed to generate those storms, 1,800 storms, amounts to approximately 1,300,000,000 horsepower to generate 1,800 storms. They go on to say, by comparison... A large earth-moving machine or tractor has about 420 horsepower and requires 100 gallons of fuel each day to operate. And so by comparison, just one of those 1,800 storms producing a rainfall of 4 inches over an area of 10,000 square miles would require the energy equivalent to the burning of 640 million tons of coal to just evaporate enough water to produce that amount of rain. And, if that wasn't enough, to cool those vapors and collect them in clouds would take another 800 million horsepower of refrigeration working night and day for 100 days. That's just one. And yet, the amazing thing to me is God allows no less than 1,800 of those kinds of storms to take place over his creation each and every day. Even the human intellectual power to figure out that kind of math is a testimony to the power and nature of God, isn't it? The brain power of God-given wisdom and intellectual Acumen to figure that out is a visible reality that God is a creator. It isn't except that a mind be willfully closed, be completely resistant to, be completely suppressive of the obvious, that the conclusion to all that God has made is that there is indeed a master designer who rules the entire universe. You have to be obviously and willfully rejecting. One man has rightly said, quote, Even a pagan should be able to discern with the psalmist. The one who made the ear and the eye is himself able to hear and to see. And so Paul declares in verse 20, 
they are without excuse. Who's the they? All men. Because all are ungodly and all are unrighteous. And because all before salvation suppress that truth, they're without excuse. The word excuse is the same word we use for defense, apologetic. We're to always be ready to make an apologetic, a defense for the faith that lies within us. That's the same thing. All men are without a defense. They're without an apologetic. So what Paul is saying is that each and every human has enough natural revelation given to them by the Creator, given to them by God Himself. Guess what? It's God's gospel and God's begun to preach it. You know when He started? When He created you. When He laid the foundation of the earth, God began to preach His gospel and He's given every man that natural revelation so that they clearly understand that He is the divine Creator. They also understand that they must acknowledge Him. They must. So that when they hold that truth away in their own unrighteousness, when they suppress it because of their own willfulness to reject Him, they are indefensible before Him. And God is justified in His condemnation of them. The ugly truth of it all is that men are judged and sent to hell not because they do not live up to the natural revelation given to them by their Creator. They're not sent to hell because they've suppressed this truth in unrighteousness. That's just the beginning. That's the beginning of the process. No, they are sent to hell because they willfully reject what this truth leads them to. And that is Jesus Christ. See, men are sent to hell because they willfully reject Jesus Christ that natural revelation leads them to. You cannot have a relationship with God simply through general revelation other than knowing His divine attributes. But that divine attributes draws you to somewhere. It leads you in a direction and it leads you to Jesus Christ. And there is no way to have a relationship with God without going through Jesus Christ. You can know enough about God through natural revelation to confirm your condemnation before Him. But you will never have a relationship with Him unless you come through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Here's what Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 10 and 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health, Talking about the one who was healed by Peter. He is the stone. That is Jesus Christ. He is the stone which was rejected by you the builders. But which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven. That has been given among men. By which we must be saved. 
I believe that if mankind will acknowledge God through the revelation that He has given them, through the light of His creation, through what He has made because He has made it evident to them, then God will also provide His hearing of the Gospel. Concerning the only one who can save, and that is Jesus Christ, our Savior. If men will acknowledge God in that way, then I believe God in His gracious mercy will will send the Gospel. Men will hear the Gospel. Paul will tell us later in this book, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so the first reason why God's wrath is justified is because of divine exposure. God has made himself known to all men. And you can, you can go into presentations, you can go in desires or, or in, in gospel presentation moments where God has given you opportunities to share the gospel. You go in with that knowledge. You already know they know. You already know they have an understanding that God is divine, that he is all-powerful. Why? Because God made it evident to them. They may reject that. They may deny that. But the reality is God said it's true. And so that's the first reason for his wrath. He has exposed himself to all men. Paul's going to give us three more reasons. I'll just list them for you. We'll get to them next time. Man's denunciation of God. Man has denounced God. That's the second reason. Third, man's elevation of himself. And fourth, man's man-made religion. Man's denunciation of God, man's elevation of self, and man's man-made religion. We'll get to those next time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful again for our time this morning. Thank you for ensuring that we are clear as to how you have made yourself clear to all men. That everywhere we look, your creation is screaming. Whether we look in the mirror or look around us, whatever we touch, All things that have been made by you speak of you, your divine nature, your eternal power is clearly seen. All men understand it. And so we trust that you would help us through this understanding help others come to that acknowledgement. Open their eyes, open their ears, cause them to see you for who you are and seek to to know you by relationship as you draw them to yourself, that they might know Christ, a living and true personification of you, the only one through whom salvation must come. So we thank you for these things, Lord. Use them in our own life. 
that you might be blessed, honored, and glorified through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.